Tonight we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 35. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, that's where we'll be. And we'll see if we can finish the book tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word and the opportunity we get to have tonight to read and study and to learn, to have ears to hear, eyes to see, open hearts, receptive to everything you have for us. We pray that as Paul tries to correct this church, that we be open to the correction. He loves them. He says they're beloved, but um, if you love somebody, you don't leave somebody in error or at fault. And uh, so Paul's heart for them, Lord, we can see, and your heart for them is to be straightened out. And that's why we come to you. That's why we're here. Um, We want encouragement. We want to know that we're doing the right thing. And and if we're not, we certainly want to be told. That's why we pray that you'd help us with this tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul continues his final corrective uh, topic in this letter, um, and it's the biggest one of all. He's covered a lot of ground here in 1 Corinthians. They had a lot of problems with this church. In fact, it's, it's amazing to me as I read it this many years later in my walk with the Lord, how messed up this first century church was, and we're still considered believers, you know? Um, we're doing pretty good, <laughs> you know. Sometimes I wonder, man, are we way off base? What you know, compared to the first century church, are we anything like you know how holy they were and how close they were? And I'm like, we're light years ahead, actually, compared to some of these folks. They actually had a problem in this last two chapters. Actually, the last chapter, 15, 16, is just a little more of a. He just closes it out. But in chapter 15, he's discussing the fact that within their church, they have a group teaching that there's no repentance or not repentance, no uh, resurrection, uh, you know. And so Paul has, you know, how do you, how do you even start with something like that? Um, and so he begins last week with, that is the gospel that I shared with you. That's the good news, that Christ was born of a virgin, that he died on the cross, and he was resurrected from the dead. That is what you believe. That's, that's why this church exists, is because they believe that gospel. And now, just a few short years later, they've decided that that last part of that gospel isn't that important, that there is no resurrection, actually teaching that in in, in church. And um, Paul's like, well, we need to address this, because if you don't believe that, you have no salvation. And that's that's that's, that's not pulling any punches, and he doesn't. Um, So he, he has put his toe in the water here, so to speak. And he's started off with that. You stand, you're, you hold fast, um, you believed, and, you, and, and you're in the gospel that we preached to you, which includes the resurrection from the dead. And now you're saying that that's not the case. What is it then that you believe in? You know, Some of these doctrines that, and I know I've been hitting on this a lot, but it, it, it is pretty frustrating to look around and see all the funny doctrines that are in churches that are just contrary to Scripture. They just don't believe them, and they just don't believe that that's valid for today, Um, even though it's clearly spelled out in God's Word. And my question to all those uh, uh, people that don't believe certain things about what the Scriptures say is, you do know that that's the same book that tells you about the Jesus that you believe in. And I don't understand how you can just wipe these things away, but keep that part and not question the very nature of the book, which is the volume of the book is written of Jesus. And to begin to erase and, and remove and, 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 and 
and part out. You know, that's what you do with a car. You know, you've got a good van that kind of runs, and then you've got a parts vehicle. To part out the Bible like that, the question is, how do you know then, if that's not true, how do you know that Jesus is true? You can't have one without the other. There are consequences for what we believe and for what we don't believe. And Paul is simply showing them the consequences of removing the resurrection from the gospel means you have no gospel. You have no good news. You can't part it out like that. And so then he carefully, and that's not enough for Paul, you know, and I like that. If he's going to kill something, he kills it dead, you know. <laughs> you don't believe in the resurrection? Well, you should, because that's what I told you the first time I met you. And, and then he just keeps going and going, and he's just punching it until it cannot get back up again. And that's why he can leave this chapter so confidently with, well, beloved, I hope you got it, you know, with a smile on his face, knowing that I'd like to see you argue against what I just shared with you. you know? There are consequences for what we believe and for what we remove from Christianity. It's a very dangerous step to take. I think it's fair to say that all of God's word is um, breathed on. It's life. It is the sword of the spirit. It's inerrant. It's perfect. Um, It's a beautiful uh, supernatural book written over thousands of years by 40 different authors, but it all has one message. Um, the, the, The time span from Genesis to Revelation and the writings all in between is incredible. Um, They didn't know each other, you know. They weren't feeding or building upon each other. They weren't plagiarizing each other. They were found in different regions and written by different people groups and economic and social. It's amazing how it all came together and how it fits so perfectly. And so we need to get past the fact that we think that we can look at this and judge it. And we need to read it as it's judging us. It's the mirror that shows us who we are. It's foolish to break the mirror that tells you the truth. We've seen the movie, right? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Cinderella. Smash. Well, that's dumb. Doesn't make it any less true. It just means you can't look at yourself anymore. God has given us this beautiful mirror to show us who he is, to show us that we were made in his image, to give us a reason and a hope. Um, to look forward to eternity, to not be afraid of death, to get forgiven for our sins. There's so much hope there. And for us to look at it and say, but I don't know about this and I don't know about that. Very dangerous thing. So Paul is systematically taking this apart. He's a lawyer. It's what he does. And he's doing a very good job. So we've gone through all that. You can listen to last week's teaching. We pick up in 35. He's not quite done yet. He's going to finish this up. We've gotten past the fact that it has to, and the fact that you've got evil company within your church teaching these things, it's corrupting you from the inside out. It's rotting you. And he tells them that, and that's where we left off last Wednesday. So he goes on with some of these uh, arguments that people have made, these teachers within the Corinthian church. And he says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Now, He's about to call them foolish, and the scriptures tell us never call anybody fool, right? But Paul doesn't have a problem with it. So I like these moments where I see, uh, never call anybody a fool. I've heard quoted to me, and then I read Paul saying, you guys are foolish. I'm like, all right. So it helps balance it out. There are foolish things to say. And people say there's no dumb questions. There kind of are some dumb questions out there. There are. I think we're afraid to say it, you know. 
sometimes. This is one of those dumb questions. Because Paul's about to say, what well, you see it every single day. You just don't acknowledge it. And that is the short-sightedness of any time you try to take a doctrine and add it to Scripture or take away from Scripture a true doctrine, is it's a very short-sighted, um, short-term gain, long-term loss when you do that. And that's what Paul's about to say to them. He calls them foolish because there's a tone with this quote, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Everybody knows that when you plant a body in the ground, it turns to dust. And so their argument is, uh, so what body? Are we going to be a bunch of dust particles floating around? You know, you can hear the sarcasm in the question. Oh, the dead are raised. This group is a tough group. The Corinthian church is a Greek culture. You remember when Paul was speaking on Mars Hill in Athens, Greek? And he was doing a really great job talking about the unknown God, the one that you don't know who to worship, but you're kind of covering all your bases with this little unknown God plaque over here. Well, I'm about to tell you about him. And he did great until he talked about what? Resurrection. And that's when they all laughed and said, oh, we'll hear you again on this tomorrow, Paul. You've got to be kidding me, the resurrection. Who believes that? Only a child, you know, all those things. That's such a, we're so past that. The Greek culture did not believe in resurrection. You're dead, you're dead. That's it. So the whole point of the Greek culture was to live for today because tomorrow you're going to die. So have it all while you can. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow you die. That was their quote. So Paul's saying that's correct. If there isn't a resurrection, you may as well live it up. What difference does it make? So their question, the Greeks in this church, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish ones, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. What you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps weed or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another kind of flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. It's different kinds of bodies like that. You put a I was going to do that. I was going to buy bulbs, but I couldn't find any bulbs in town. I was going to give you all a bulb, you know, to take home. It's fall. It's time to plant bulbs for next year, you know. Bulbs are ugly and gross and flaky and nasty and brown. And you're looking at your kids. You're like, we're going to plant bulbs. And like, whatever. It looks like a little shriveled up wart thing, you know. But next year, this tulip bulb or this whatever bulb is going to come up, you know. And it's not going to be this ugly wart thing that you're putting in the ground right now. It's going to be amazing what happens. All winter long, it's going to go dormant. It's going to split open eventually in the spring, and out's going to come this beautiful flower. Unbelievable. You know, that came from that. Paul says it's the same with us. Now, consider that. All the time we spend on these warts, you know, we don't like to think of ourselves that way, but you're like a nasty old bulb. That's all you are. And you're worried about some flaking thing coming off or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. Let's get planted. You know, my hope is to get in the dirt six feet under. And then I want to turn to dust. I want to die. I want it to let it fall apart, take every. And then what God brings out of that is going to be amazing. That's the difference between this body that I care so much about right now and the new body we're going to have in heaven. We don't make this stuff up. He's going to describe some of the characteristics of this new body. 
I can't wait. I've told you about my Diet Mountain Dew problem. 20 years plus, six to eight Diet Mountain Dews a day. I know everybody's like, oh, that's horrible for you. I know. So? I mean, and I, and I, wouldn't, I wasn't smart enough to go cheap and buy it like in bulk like a lot of people do. You see them come out of the cart with like 4,000 bottles of Diet Pepsi because that's their life, you know? I didn't do that. I went to Casey. So I'm spending like 16 to 20 bucks a day on soda. Don't do the math. It's very depressing to think about. <laughs> and so God's really shown me, you can't do that. And Bo has been really on me about that. And, you know, you're not supposed to have that, Dad. Shut up, you know? <laughs> you're not the Holy Spirit in my life, you know? And, uh, I'll sneak one in. I don't do it anymore. It's so strange. I was feeling horrible, you know, I'm like, I got it, you know, and so thanks to my wife and, and her good habits and, and I try and, and, and I fail, but gotten rid of it for the most part and switched to different kinds of stimulants, different kinds of caffeine vehicles. <laughs> I guess that's never going to go, I'm afraid. Um, I can go now after being off it and go have a diet Mountain Dew and I get a flaming burning in this elbow no more than an hour and a half after I have it. I have severe kidney pain, just absolutely throbbing. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is it. I'm going to be on dialysis the rest of my life, you know. <laughs> horrible, horrible. And I get irritable, not like a normal irritable, but almost like just I'm angry. I'm just angry at everybody, you know. Everybody's wrong. I'm perfect, you know. And it's the strangest thing. I don't know how I got on that. What was I doing there? My body's falling apart, maybe. I don't know. Wicked little wart kind of thing. But the new bodies, none of that pain anymore. Um, it's incredible. And Paul tries to explain that to the Corinthians. This isn't something to dismiss, this resurrection from the dead, this new body that God promises us. It's not something to dismiss so easily. It's a beautiful thing that God is trying to promise us and give us and give us hope. And it's not mythology. It's not, it's not uh, let's keep people uh, in the building, so let's tell them about some fantasy that might not come true someday. He's like, no, this is why we, we come. We're dying. We can feel it. See, Adam and Eve never had the burning joints before the fruit, that moment at the tree. They never had the kidney pain. They never had death. They never saw aging like we do. The falling apart, all that stuff came when we disobeyed God and decided to go against his word and do exactly what he told us not to do. And so God is trying to give us hope. Now, through Jesus Christ, you're going to be a new creation in Christ. Yes, it starts off with you've got a new hope now. You're not just going to rot in the ground. You're going to spring up into new life. You're going to have this new body that doesn't have all these problems that isn't bound by the, the wages of sin, which is death. I'm going to set you free from all that. You're going to get a new body. That's hope. That's what we look forward to. It causes you not to fear death, but look forward to it. You know? I thought, you know, the going into the dirt's a little terrifying. The moment or the, or the how, you know, is a little iffy for us. But the promise is there. And it makes sense. Paul has been going over this with them, and it's illogical to believe that there isn't a resurrection from the dead. It's illogical now. It's not just because 
uh, you know, the, the Grecians, the Greek people believed in this God or that God or, or all the mythology that, that they had going on. Um, even today with, with what we believe and what the world seems to be moving away from religion and we're getting smarter and wiser and now it's just science and it's just this. And it's, no, it, that's illogical to not believe in the supernatural, to not believe something beyond this creation. It's illogical. It's so overwhelming sometimes, and I try to bring my mind away from that precipice because when I sit there and it's dark and I'm thinking to myself, there is no end to the universe, you know? And I know we've all been there, but I keep going there and I keep thinking about what's beyond and, and how there is no, and we've talked about this before, and it's just, it bothers me to think that there is no solids, that you can go down and see that molecule, but then that molecule's made of something, and then that's made of something, and then that's made of something. When do we get to it? And is there one? And all of a sudden, I'm starting to think, okay, so we live in a virtual reality. I mean, I go there, you know? And the rest of you guys are just computer-generated people in my life, and I'm walking around being controlled. But I mean, it, you just, okay, bring it down, bring it down. It doesn't make sense that we're living here. It doesn't make sense that you're sitting here looking at me and I'm looking at you. None of this makes sense without the creator, without God. Then it makes all perfect sense. It absolutely makes sense. It's the most logical thing to hold on to, to believe in, to preach, to tell people about. It changes everything. Without him, chaos. No morals. Without God, no hope, um, just what you see in front of you at this moment, which, by the way, there is no present and there's only future and past because now is now past. You know, you don't want to go there in your mind and think there too long. You know, it only makes sense if there's a God. If at one point in time he decided time, which allows for space, which allows for matter, and you can't have one without the other. They all have to be there at the same time. Laws of nature have to be written for everything to function like it is. Everything has to be in place before. That can only happen before if there's a mind before and a creator. It all makes sense. Paul's saying this hope of the resurrection is essential and is life-giving and gives you hope and a reason to wake up in the morning. If your reason to wake up in the morning is to do better at your job, it's going to end in 20 to 50 years, depending on how old you are, or to make money and to bank it so that you can have a retirement of 20 years of driving around on a Harley. So you die and you turn into dirt. Nothing wrong with Harleys. You have a Harley? I'm sorry. He's like, what's wrong with Harleys? Nothing wrong with them. Just can't be our hope. Can't be for our reason for living. Paul's saying there are consequences to not believing in the resurrection. It means everything that you believed on is it's invalid and it's hopeless. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of man, another kind of flesh of animals, another fish, another birds. We all see that. He's trying to show them. You see this every day. You see seeds planted every spring. You see, you see corn come up. That sh- and it doesn't even make sense that that one grain of corn turns into that 12 to 14 foot stalk with a fat, you know, I don't know how many other kernels you get out of it. Some of you Aggies know. 
It doesn't make sense, but there it is. He says, so why is it so hard to believe that God's not doing the same thing with you? There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, heavenly bodies versus earthly bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. And oh, with these new shots, these new pictures we're getting from the new telescope, incredible, amazing, terrifying and beautiful at the same time. Just unbelievable how tiny we get. I hate those videos that say, here you are, and it starts to zoom out, and it goes the Milky Way, and then it goes, and you're like, oh my goodness, we don't even exist, you know, but we do. It's all for us to look at, all of it. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. So there's our first characteristic of our new body. It's incorruptible. It will never die. It will never rot. It will never get sick. You'll never need another thing replaced, whatever that thing is, you know. Hallelujah. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. There's our second one. It's incorruptible and it's glorious in its appearance. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. There's our third. It has, it's incorruptible, it's glorious, and it's got power. Not power like our power lifting, you know. Power, unbelievable power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. I don't even know what that means. We get the idea from the text in Genesis 1 that it says that Adam and Eve were clothed with light. Nobody knows what that means. They had an existence that we'll never experience until we're glorified, until we're in heaven. But they walked a walk and lived a life before the fall that we have no idea what it means or what it was like. They would walk with God in the cool of the day, which means their body that they were currently in was able to withstand the glory of God, where God says, after the fall, no man can see the Father and live, but they did every single day. Clothed with light. Hmm. I mean, we can ponder it, but that's all Scripture gives us. Amazing. There's a natural body, and there's a spiritual body, and so it is written. The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Last Adam is Jesus. If you don't understand that, that's what, the, that's what Paul's been teaching. The last Adam is Jesus. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those um, who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. That's exciting to me. You think about all the things that Jesus was able to do during his, well, while he was here, for one thing, but after his resurrection, but before he ascended into heaven, but was walking around, going through walls, showing up, you know, changing his appearance and his likeness so that the guys on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him but still had the scars at the appropriate times for Thomas to be able to put his hands into his prints if he wanted to, you know? He says, just like Adam was just a flesh and blood kind of person, that's what we're experiencing right now. But when we get translated into this new body, we're going to be like Jesus. Not like in character or in morals, which is what we all hope for now, you know? We want that. 
but we're going to be able to do all those things he was able to do. We're going to move like he was able to move. When we see the angels flying around and all these things that we sort of get a glimpse of in heaven, especially in the book of Revelation and Ezekiel and places like that, we're going to be able to do all that stuff with these new bodies. Paul's like, this is not a good doctrine to throw out. This is everything. This is so exciting. And he's trying to get them excited about it. So he spends the first half of this chapter telling him, you're absolutely wrong. How can you believe this? It's foolish. Anybody that says that is foolish. But here's what you're missing out on. The hope of this. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We're going to have both. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Colon, here's the mystery. Something never, never been understood before until now. We shall not all sleep or die. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Never, ever, ever die. My salvation, your salvation, never, ever, ever ends. My body never falls apart again. We're never out of fellowship with God. We're never going to sin again as long as we live, which is forever. It all changes. That's when it happens. That's when death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? It doesn't. It loses. Now, before we move on, turn to 1 Thessalonians 4.13. I want to talk a little bit about this getting caught up, this changing in the twinkling of an eye. I think it's an important moment to share that and to talk about that. We only have a couple places in Scripture that give us such good, solid pictures of what takes place at death. I use this in some funerals, sometimes family permitting. Because everybody wants to know as they're looking at the person in the box, where are they? What's happened to them? You know, because you look at the plastic coated face, you know, and you're like, that ain't them anymore. I mean, it's them, but it's not at all them. They just look different. The part that made them them is gone. Where is that? The spirit, the soul. He says in verse 13 of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, but I do not want you to be ignorant. And the church is the most ignorant about these things. Isn't that funny? Gifts of the Spirit. I don't want you to be ignorant. Church is scared to death of the gifts of the Spirit. The rapture. I don't want to even talk about the rapture. Literally tells us not to be ignorant of it. Brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, resurrection, even so God will bring bring with him those who sleep or died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those, we're not going ahead of them, who are asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The word caught up there, in case everybody's going to argue, the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's a made-up doctrine that came around about. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. The word caught up is raptus. We call it rapture. Fine. We'll never say rapture again. Explain this then. We will be caught up in the air. So I'm waiting for the caught up if that makes you feel better. That, that didn't use the word rapture. Doesn't make any difference. We will be caught up together with them in the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. It's the same thing he's discussing here in 1 Corinthians, that changing and the twinkling of an eye. Boom. Now, we're all kind of hoping for that. I mean, we're all bulbs. We all understand that tonight. We'll all go buy a bulb from Walmart and put it in our pocket and remind ourselves that that's all this body's worth. It's kind of a bulb. You put it in the ground, we're going to write. But nobody wants to be put in the ground. We're kind of all hoping for the caught up in this, you know, to take place. There's no death. We just go up in the air and we get this new body and all right, you know, that's the way to be. However it happens, most people will die, be planted, and then be changed. That's how most people go. There's going to be a select few that at that moment in time will be raised up right before the rapture, right before the great tribulation. This is going to take place. We get taken up. And we see that in Revelation chapter 4. That's a hope. That's exciting. Here's what he finishes up that little section in Thessalonians about. He says this, we're going to always be with the Lord. Verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. When we remove that doctrine from our life, how do you comfort each other? That's why Paul said last week, if only in this life we have the hope of Jesus Christ and after we die, there is no resurrection. What difference does it make? He says, we're to be pitied of all men. We're the worst off in the whole, in the whole town. We're the worst because we're not doing what everybody else is doing, eating and drinking for tomorrow we die because there is no afterlife. Of course there is. It doesn't make sense to us. You can't comprehend your own non-existence. Not to get too esoterical here, but it's hard not to think those things sometimes like, wait, no, I'm always going to be. Now there's a beginning that makes sense to me. I understand that I could be created and start, but I cannot figure out how that's going to end and how that doesn't. It just disappear. That's terrifying. We miss out on all that hope. We can't rest upon any of those things. It would be hard to get out of bed in the morning knowing that or believing that. You know. Paul's saying, you guys just haven't followed it to its logical conclusion if there's no resurrection. And so you can see why he's pounding this down in the dirt. By the time you're done reading this, everybody's like, I, I, I kind of believe it now. I get it now, Paul. Now that you brought me to complete depression with our own theology and our own thoughts about the idea, yours is the only one with hope and brings joy. It makes sense. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's overcome all those things. Believing on Jesus satisfies the death that comes from our sin. And so therefore we get this new body. That's the hope. That's the gospel. Therefore, my beloved brethren, and that's how he, that's how he can end this chapter this way. Not therefore you, you, you know, you, you, you crazy apostate church that doesn't believe the right things. 
He doesn't have to end that way. He says, now that I've clearly laid out for you how foolish that conversation is about not having a resurrection, I can say this, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul's concern and what he brings up in this last verse is that you weren't steadfast. You've been moved. And now that I brought you back from that place where you were moved to, moved out of the gospel into believing some guy who just couldn't get it in his head, so he wanted to make sure nobody else could get it in their heads. Now that I've reasoned with you better than they reasoned you out of it, I've reasoned you back into it, stay there. Don't be so moved by these things. He says the same things to the Galatians about a whole different topic. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who taught you this stuff? If you just read the Bible, that's it. No commentaries, nothing. You'd never get these weird doctrines coming into your life, ever. It's only through people like me, if I'm not careful, that I can persuade people into believing funny, weird things, you know? I can get off base or off track. It's only through man's mouth that we get confused. The Holy Spirit and his sword in your life by himself and yourself your doctrine is going to be amazing, rock solid. He will never lead and guide you into anything but the complete and total truth. And if you read this book from cover to cover, now don't slack, read it from Genesis to Revelation, everything becomes clear. He builds upon himself. He answers questions you had in, oh my goodness, we're reading Leviticus. You know, He'll fix that when you get into Galatians. You, know, you go to Hebrews, he starts explaining some of the weird things you read about the the, the, uh, the sacrifices over here that didn't make, why are we killing all the animals? What's with all the blood of the goats and the bulls and the things? And you get to read Hebrews chapters three and four, and you're like, oh, that's why. You know, He explains it, and your doctrine becomes full and complete and perfect. You'll never get weird if you just read God's word and let the Holy Spirit teach you. That, that you can trust, always. And so Paul writes this corrective letter. He says, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, chapter 16, we'll finish this up. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, Sunday, by the way, when you meet, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collection or collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. In other words, before I get there, take up the collection. I don't want to do that when I'm there. It's weird. It's awkward. Nor do I want you to hand me the money bags. You guys pick an ambassador for your church, and they're going to carry the money bags with me to Jerusalem or by themselves. If I have to go, I have to go, but your guy's coming with me. I'm never going to be accused of holding the money bag, you know. Oh, Paul didn't make it, you know. Paul knows very well there could be a robbery on the way or something. And to, oh, sure, you got robbed, Paul, you know. No, 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 you guys are coming with me. I never got to touch the money. You guys just bring it all the way to Jerusalem. Now, what's happening here? Jerusalem's poor. They're having a problem. We don't know exactly what it is. We speculate sometimes. Remember how they got excited when they first got saved? And what did they do? They pooled all their resources, and they kind of sat around, and they distributed to everybody everything. Everybody had everything in common. It was so beautiful, and I understand that. True communism works, provided everybody works, right? Well, 
That pool's dried up. All the land's been sold. Everything's been divvied out. Jesus didn't come as fast as we thought he was going to come. Because they were thinking he's going to go and come right back. Well, it's been 2,000 years for us. It, it, it doesn't take long to blow through that. That's my guess. That's, that's what most people speculate took place. But Jerusalem's in a tough spot right now. There's a lot of persecution there. Make no mistake about it. The dispersions happened. The, uh, Rome is hammering down on Christians. Most of the Christians have taken off. That's how Paul met Aquila and Priscilla. Everybody just, you know, it's like someone stomping on a fire and all the fire, fly, you know, all the fire coals go flying everywhere. That's what happened in Christianity. Boom, and it spread. Great. But now that core isn't there anymore, you know. So, so they're poor. Paul says, you know what? They need some help. And we need to, we need to bring them a gift, you know, a love gift. They need some help. They need some support. So he says, raise the money. Get it together. Um, but then your guys are going to carry it there. Um, but make sure that happens before I get there, which tells them something. Just in case there was anybody in the crowd at the Corinthian church thinking, well, fine, we read Paul's letter like he told us to. Now let's go on teaching about the non-resurrection from the dead. There's not going to happen anymore. Paul says, I am coming, by the way. And I sent this letter ahead of time. So when I come, it's a nice, pleasant experience. And the idea is, if you don't believe this letter and I have to talk to you about this in person, it's not going to be such a pleasant experience because I will straighten this out. Paul loves them that much, not to leave them here, without hope, without a gospel. Verse 5, now, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain, or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. That's what James tells us to say also. I want to do this, that, or the other thing, if the Lord wills. Because I don't know my plans. I've got plans. Hazley, tell us about your plans to go to Africa. Why are you still here? You know? We laid hands on her on Sunday. She's going. She's good. And I look over. I said, you're not supposed to be here right now, you know? Now there's visa issues and two-way tickets and all. You got to have both ways and all this. So we plan our ways, but the Lord directs our steps. And that's a good place to be. Let's just let him be in charge of this, you know? And so as the Lord leads, and if the Lord wills, Hazley's going to go to Africa. We don't know. That's just our plans. We're always open to letting God change things if he wants to change things. That's okay. He knows best. And so he says, I plan on coming to see you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. I'm going to stay there. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. You can almost see him smile. Oh, they hate me here, you know. <laughs> Nobody wants me to preach, so I'm going to stay for a while, you know, kind of thing. Do we think like that in our walk? I mean, I kind of do. There are, there are days where I just rather avoid the, adver you know, the adversaries or whatever. But when you feel that oppression or you feel that, that the adversaries coming against you or that, uh, uh, you know, just enemies show up, it's like, oh, why don't you want me here? What did I touch on? What nerve did I hit? You know, what is it about the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know, you say it a little louder. That bothers you so much. Why can't I teach the Bible? Why can't I share the gospel? Paul says, there are a lot of adversaries here. So I think there's a great and effective door. And that is usually how it is. When Jesus and the disciples were crossing over the, the, the Sea of Galilee, 
to go minister. That's when that great storm happened. And just on the other side, as Jesus said, peace be still, and they arrived at the shore, here come the, the, the demonic guys running naked at them, you know. Ah, gets these two guys saved in their right mind, and he leaves them there, even though they want to come with him. He says, no, you guys stay here and tell everybody about what the Lord's done for you. And the next time they come across the Sea of Galilee, 10 city groups, 10 groups from 10 different cities, the Decapolis, come and, and they've all been evangelized by these two crazy demon-possessed guys. You know, they got saved. A great and effective ministry will have great and effective adversaries come against you. The storm, the sea, did not want them to make it across. Turn around, go home, it's too hard. You're stuck in the middle. You're not going to get anywhere. You know, this isn't God's will. They may have heard in their own minds. Jesus says, no, it's this as well. I told you I was going to go to the other side. We will be on the other side. We're going to go there. Know that about your ministry and what God's called you to do. It may be difficult, but that means it's going to be effective for the most part. You know, why can't I get there? Why are there so many adversaries? Paul says, because there's a great and effective door of ministry open to me. Verse 10, and if Timothy comes, that was his faithful little brother in the Lord. See that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him and the brethren. So he's probably got this letter, or he's coming to him at a later time, and uh, Timothy's his right-hand man. Timothy's always been there. He said, a couple times Paul says, I have no one else to send you but Timothy. No one else caught the vision. Nobody has the heart for you. Like, I have a heart for you, except for this Timothy. I've tried to send other people. I've tried to get other people involved in ministry. They just keep wandering off, flaking out. It's got too hard. They went back to the world, you know. I got Timothy, and he tells Timothy in his letter to Timothy that I don't want you to be despised. Don't let them despise you. And he says here, do not despise him. He's young, imagine all those guys with grayer beards than mine, maybe a little bit longer, you know. And this young guy, Timothy, you know, comes in. You believe, you know, powerful, strong, strong believer. A little over the top, Timothy. Mellow out a little bit. You're a little too. Don't despise him, his zeal, his love for God. He's the guy on the other side of the bars for Paul. Paul's in prison most of the time. Timothy's on the other side of the bar saying, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to tell everybody? Go get my coat. Go get my scriptures. Bring me some scrolls. Go send this message. Take this letter that I just wrote. You bet. And then back to the prison. What's next, Tim? What's next, Paul? Where can I go? And Paul's like, who is this kid? You know, Who is this guy? Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace. He's warning them. This is my emissary. He's my guy. Don't treat him badly, you know. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you uh, with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come uh, when he has a convenient time. I read a lot into that. It's hard for me not to. It's like I told Paulus I really wanted him to go with Timothy, but he said he had better things to do, you know. So he's going to come to you when it's convenient. Apollos, ministry isn't convenient. Ministry is ministry. And it comes when it comes and you do what you're told and you get out there and you be your Lord's servant. When the things of this world and your schedules and stuff get in the way of what God wants to do in your life, then their schedule goes. 
is the idea. Paul did not understand these kind of th- this, th- this kind of thinking. He didn't get it. Paul says he's going to come. He's going to come when it's convenient for him. And you know what? Paul leaves him in the dust. And stay. Timothy, go. The ministry doesn't stop. We keep moving forward. We're not waiting on you. You know, we move forward. Verse 13, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let, uh, let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, uh, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunus, okay, um, Achaicus, I think. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Right to their face. It says, they did what you should have done. That's okay. I'm glad Paul's that kind of brother. They refreshed me when I needed refreshing. The thing you should have done for me, but you didn't. Paul's them on it. See, the Corinthian church was too proud and too above Paul. That's how this whole letter starts. Do I need to get some documents that say I'm approved by other people to come talk at your group, you know, at your next meeting, even though I'm the one that started the church in Corinth? You know, I like that. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand. Paul's. So in other words, he had that eye problem. He usually had someone write for him. And he says, no, this is my, I'm writing now. And you can see the large letters and everything. I'm writing big because it's me writing now. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Oh Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. He makes sure that they know I love you. And that's why I wrote this. It was strong. It's harsh. It's heavy, but it's a spiritual father to spiritual children. You've got to have the resurrection. You've got to stop these things that are going on in your church. You've got to get your doctrine straightened out. That's true love. That's love to tell someone that they're doing something wrong. That's something that we miss sometimes in Christianity. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we know you love us. We thank you for this letter. We will be corrected. We want everything you have for us. And tonight, hopefully we've heard at least something that your Holy Spirit wanted us to get. And um, we'll do it. We're not going to be hearers only, but doers of your word. God, I pray that starting tonight, you know, before we walk out this door, we commit to whatever you showed us tonight in your word. We're going to do it. We want to be like Timothy. We want to be like Paul. We want to be like a, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. We want to be like these people. Um, we think of... Stephanus and Fortunus and all these people that Paul mentions, uh, we, we want that. We know that you didn't stop here working with people and using people. We know you're still doing that today. And there are varying degrees of commitment in churches. God, we want to be at the top, at the point, Lord, like these men were and these women were. We want to be there. But we don't want to be like Apollos. So Lord, help us to walk with you as closely as we can to hear your voice as loudly and clearly as we need to, and to obey your commands and to be ready to serve, to be standing there ready like Timothy was. Where can I go? What can I do? Send me. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up.
Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a great rest of the week.